Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Yesterday, and I hate to tell you this, but sequels always suck. <laughs> Campbell Faulkner is back from OTC Global Holdings. You were on last summer, but we've actually done a couple of sequels on Chuck Yates Needs a Job, and they've been pretty good. Oh, so, so maybe we don't have the curse of the sequel, but you were kind enough to come on last summer when we were on the verge of rolling blackouts and we talked about the grid. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me, but the punchline was basically what we've done with ERCOT. And in effect, ERCOT is really just Texas's grid. I mean, there's there's some areas of East Texas that are not part of ERCOT, but Texas's grid, what we've done over the last, call it 15 years, 20 years, is we've replaced dispatchable power with intermittent power, primarily renewables, primarily wind. And the reason that happened was really the federal tax code driving that change. And so you have unpredictability in power as well as a different kind of power. Thus, that's why we have these days where it's like conserve, conserve, or we're all going to black out. And so I called it our ERCOT 101 podcast. I thought it was really good. Got a lot of good feedback. I had Russell Gold, who's Texas Monthly Reporter, on, and he brought up the comment to me is, why don't we uh, hook ERCOT to the rest of the grid in the United States? And in effect, not just because we need power sometimes, kind of what I'll call the Band-Aid or the insurance problem, but to actually export power because we sell all sorts of energy. And you're the smartest person I know on this side, texted you this, and you were like, well, do you have an hour? And I was like, great, I got an hour. Sure, can we record it? And you were kind enough to come back. So, No, I appreciate the opportunity to come back. Thank you again. It's it's fun to watch because most of what happens in ERCOT, as we're all brutally aware, is frankly kind of behind the scenes, outside of the legislative session and you know trying to get some of the new bills passed and occasionally the public utilities commissioner saying, hey, you know, we're fine with reliability. It kind of happens behind closed doors, and unfortunately, after the URI event in 21, everyone's paying close attention now. So there's all sorts of armchair solutions. Uh, I'm probably someone who's also promulgating them, even though I'm actively involved in the market uh, via a variety of risk mechanisms. It's interesting because, in all theory, it sounds so easy. Look at MISO last week. They had low prices. MISO basically contacts us, us contacts us, pardon me. Three East Texas well, and Louisiana. Let's, let's do this for mom real quick. Sure. Uh, mom, ERCOT is in effect kind of the Texas grid from something I think in the 1930s. Didn't we basically say, hey, we're not going to join the rest of the interconnect with the rest of the grid across America because we want Texas to regulate this, not the FERC. I've boogered that up enough, but give kind of the 30 seconds to a minute. Yeah, apologies on, on that. On who ERCOT is and who's surrounding, just so when we use that and start talking about it, we've got some frame of reference. So ERCOT is kind of an interesting entity. The Texas Reliability Entity, ERCOT, ERCOT's basically the Dispatch Control Manager Balancing Authority. Then we have the TRE, which is Texas Reliability Entity. There's going to be a lot of acronyms. I apologize, and if I slip into them, please tell me to explain. So the 
ERCOT market design, ERCOT kind of as a grid, there's multiple attempts to kind of basically bring it under FERC heel, interconnect with SPP, which is basically toward north uh, Oklahoma. We also connect uh, to the western, well, DC ties. Let me say that we are not AC synchronized, which is an important consideration for what we're going to talk about today. There's only a couple major interconnects. There's the eastern, the western, Quebec, and us. So that's all of North America. Mexico is a little bit different because of the way their grid operates and synchronous. We do have some synchronous ties. Again, that's AC, DC. But ERCOT covers, I think, 90 or 93% of Texas, uh, which is an important distinction. El Paso is not on ERCOT. Longview, Texas is not on ERCOT. And I think neither is Lufkin. So it's kind of... Part of the woodlands that aren't. See, that I didn't know. I didn't know there was... It into Montgomery County a little bit. And see, that's part of the interesting factor. I'm sure I've looked at it on a map and I'm sure I've forgotten it, to be blunt. But that's one of the important aspects of it's not the state itself. It is a large chunk of the state. And because of that, Texas operates basically under its own purview and authority. We we are we are backdoor FERC regulated. I mentioned that last year, and it is important to say like there's not just some wild west going on in Texas, but predominantly the legislatures who mandates, controls, works through the Public Utilities Commission to operate our grid. And ERCOT and actually it was just shown they had sovereign immunity. I think yesterday or the day before in that uh, court judgment. In fact, it is a quasi-governmental agency, and they are the they're what everybody's ire is drawn towards, but that is kind of the grid operator. So we also have other grid operators that abut us, and we have some, like in El Paso, which are the Western Interconnect. SPP's kind of funky. Uh, there's parts of it that are Western, parts of it that are Eastern. Uh, SPP's trying to form a Western grid. So for simplicity's sake, we're going to kind of keep them on the Eastern Interconnect for talking about this, but it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And then we also have MISO, which is the mid-continent, and it goes basically from New Orleans and Mississippi all the way up into Saskatchewan. Uh, and over North Dakota, it's huge. So these are large geographic areas that are controlled basically by large balancing authorities. Most of the U.S. is under an RTO, ISO operating mechanism, which means you have central dispatch. It's not like it was prior to, say, 1999 in Texas, where it was mostly dealt with by you know, the balancing authorities that are, you know, Centerpoint or TXU and so on. So because of that, we have our own kind of mini grid. We're kind of our own natural experiment, you know, right or wrong, separate from, say, like California, separate, say, from like PJM, which is mid-continent. So because of that, there's a lot of talk specifically addressing what you're saying. Why aren't we interconnected? So just dummying this all down as Texas... A large part of Texas is its own grid. The rest of the United States is broken into divisions, but those divisions are more connected and can share power. Yes, and and they're huge. And we can share power with the other folks, but it's very, very limited in our ability to to do that. Correct. So that's why kind of we're our own island. Yeah, we and we do have high voltage DC, uh, which is frankly, an effective way to do import-export. Why DC? DC because then, you know, we're not synchronously connected. So that allows us to export or import power over, I think we have four active DC ties at five technically, but it's kind of complicated with VFD or So the reason we have all of these is largely so we can wheel power in and out. Uh, we can NERC tag it and send it out. It's just difficult to do because one, HVDC interfaces are hideously expensive versus synchronously connecting. But if we synchronously connect, even if we continue to be kind of an ISO, then we come under FERC purview. Then we have all sorts of different reliability mechanisms, as well as figuring out 
what grid do we go to? Do we go to the Western grid? Do we go to the Eastern interconnect? These are big fundamental questions. Do we break Texas up into, you know, a couple different, you know, quasi-island grids, kind of like we already have Montgomery County, like you mentioned, Longview versus Tyler, where I grew up, they're on entirely separate grids. So there's a lot of questions around that. And also as to who pays for this, these are not costless things to do. Now, we're currently paying for, you know, higher prices in Texas, ratepayers are. I mean, it's just fundamental because if we're kind of short in the summer, uh, but then a lot of the year we have really low prices. So those also have an effect. And what all this has to do with kind of that push to, you know, synchronously connect is, well, sure, it's easy. When our prices are really low, we just ship power to Louisiana. When our prices are really high, excuse me, we incorporate, you know, coal power from wherever else or wind from Oklahoma. The the polite way to say it is it's not insane to to map out on a table game. It's not something that is going to immediately fix our reliability issues, nor is it something that you're going to quietly walk into. Uh, we added basically Amarillo um, and the Panhandle back into ERCOT. They were not part of ERCOT until recently. And that was a large multi-year process to actually get them energized, get them switched over, um, you know, and basically get them synchronously tied. A lot of this has to do with the power and reliability engineering. So the polite way to say it is this isn't just something where we go put up a new substation, flip a switch, array, you know, we can export and import power. So that's the... <clears throat> so... As my understanding, it was something back in the the 30s under FDR when they were messing around like Tennessee Valley Authority. They were doing all the power type stuff and Texas being Texas, screw you, D.C., we don't want to be part of it. So I may have boogered up that story, but that's kind of how ERCOT got carved out. Part of it. Part of it. One of the things that, you know, from a historical artifact is interesting. Yes, one, Texas wanted to control its own destiny. No, can't even make that up. But two, you have to remember, Texas in the 30s was very rural. Texas in the 30s was very far away from everything else. Right. You know, Oklahoma and Oklahoma City didn't have very many people. There weren't a lot of people in East Texas. There were not a heck of a lot of people in Dallas. I mean, Houston in 1950. Get what air conditioning did for the South, right? Houston I mean, was half a million people in 1950. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the entire metro area. Right. It, that's inconceivable now when you have, good Lord, probably like eight and a half million, you know, within an hour's drive of here. That type of growth is very different. So when a lot of this was getting designed, well, electric co-ops, you know, a lot of my customers like Bird Dallas Electric Co-op, small electric co-ops were basically just trying to light their tiny little, you know, municipalities or small farm area. And a lot of Texas didn't get fully lit until, shoot, you know, the late 50s. And that's kind of a, Kind of a thing that's strange because in the cities, you've had power for, oh, good Lord, 120, 130 years. But in rural areas, you didn't have power. I mean, a lot of the South still had outhouses as late as 1960, which is inconceivable, but it was very different. It was very poor, very rural. We had oil and gas, you know, and that drove a lot of rural electrification and things like that. But those were very different phenomenon from, you know, what happened in Tennessee Valley. Tennessee Valley, huge dam building project. A lot of that built out. We had a mini version of that with LCRA and the Highland Lake chain as well, but obviously significantly smaller scale and not a lot of hydro. So a lot of those projects were federally backed. We did have a lot of rural, you know, cooperative electric development in Texas over the years. But, you know, there was a push in the 70s with the midnight connection to try to get us to synchronously energize, kind of an illegal overnight connection. Uh, some fun reading about that. But for the most part, Texas kind of developed on its own because we were really, really 
far away from a lot of the other grids. It's so, a so, natural outcome. So if we're going to connect today, you you and I are made energy czars of, of Texas and we have complete authority. And I get it that ERCOT is a charity, you know, yeah. charitable corporation. But anyway, let's say we get in charge of that too. There is a, what you're saying is there's a whole engineering, which ultimately means a lot of dollars, difficult, hard thing to do to connect to the rest of the United States, to the West, to up through Oklahoma, as well as to the East. And where I was going with it is I bet there's a whole political thing of we'll have protesters in front of our house as energies are if we want to do it. So you've got that factor as well. Yes. Um, one of the kind of sidebar, but still relevant, there's a big transmission build out in Texas going on. You drive around, you know, particularly in West or Orcott South, um, so like South San Antonio, you're going to see a tremendous amount of new plant. A lot of the plant hadn't been built or upgraded in 50 years because it didn't really need to be. And so there's a lot of pushback between private individuals who are like, I don't want this on my property. I don't want these new transmission lines. Imagine that at like an order of magnitude, bigger scale both connecting those, dealing with basically wheeling power, which is, you know, moving it in and out of different control districts. The physical engineering challenge is not insurmountable, but the question is how much tax dollars are going to get spent. In addition to private, we have difficulty just getting enough transmission built in Texas to begin with, not not to say the rest of the United States as well. It's a huge, hugely problematic issue. And you're doing that from the engineering standpoint of, this is not a simple, trivial thing. Do we break Texas up? You can't just connect Texas. I mean, you could connect Texas to the Western, you know, interconnect or the Eastern interconnect, but you can't connect, say, like Houston to the Eastern interconnect, Dallas to, you know, parts of SPP, which are Eastern, but then do we separate like, you know, all, all of West Texas? Does that go with, you know, EP Electric can go into the Western interconnect? That's not a simple thing is then you have to figure out where do we cleave it? How do we break it up? Who are the companies? A lot of companies who have built transmission in Texas may in fact sue over it. You know, there's a lot of litigation of we made this investment to move wind from, you know, wherever we generated it to, you know, load center in Midland. Are we not going to get paid back because now, you know, we're going to basically be zero rated out and we're not going to be able to make money, you know, exporting to the West. There's a lot of interplay there. Secondly, I, this is my personal opinion. I like the natural experiment because I think Texas has done some unique not always the right thing, but unique things that kind of provide a planning guide for the rest of the United States in particular and you know, probably all of North America. Um, but that's just kind of my, I want to monkey with it a bit and see and kind of, you know, understand operationally how, how do you onboard renewables and what do you do, you know, in absence of what wind, things like that. But it's a very simplified problem of who the heck do we connect to? How do we do it? The easiest way to do it is obviously high voltage DC. You know, arguably we could maybe use more high voltage DC ties, but then that's going to be transmission build and all sorts of other aspects of actually controlling those. So just from a synchronous standpoint, which means, you know, we actually connect up ACAC, it's, it's massively complicated. So let's focus just on the engineering side of this. And I will qualify. I, I've done software engineering my entire career. I'm not a, you know, line engineer. So there may be some things where I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not quite as precise and, you know, someone's going to clap me over definitions. Me. Yeah, yeah, I know. I slept I, at a Holiday Inn last night, so uh, I'll play it. But just if if we're trying to give the magnitude of the engineering problem and, and roll dollars into it, because that's, that's ultimately the outcome, is 
is the problem on a scale of one to 10 with one being me directing my seven-year-old child to eat their vegetables and 10 being solving the Middle East problem? What, what, what number would you put on the problem of interconnecting Texas with the rest of the nation in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, from, the, thankfully, uh, I, don't, I don't have to go back this up with, uh, you know, a professional engineering sure. license. It's, it's pushing seven to eight. Why do, okay. why do I say that? These systems are complex, and this is a sidebar, and someone's going to get mad at me over this, but I'm going to say it anyway. A great example is we use DC line physics models to basically predict congestion and things like that. And you're like, why does that matter? Well, we use DC line physics because the problems are solvable and tractable. AC systems are very, very complicated and their interactions are difficult to, you know, not only model to understand. Uh, sorry for digressing a little bit more. A great example is a lot of older power systems like TVA and things like that physically built small models with like loads and generators and things like that to actually understand how their systems work. That is that is the actual physical component that is incredibly difficult to model. Even with all of the computing horsepower we have, it's incredibly difficult. So why is that important? It's not something we're going to go get some guys, you know, some power engineers with CAD systems are going to design it up and it's just going to magically work. And because of that, you can't have a large robust failure mode to say, oops, we synchronized the grid and we're going to be down for three weeks trying to fix this. So it's kind of like basically replacing your carburetor while your car is going 85 down the highway. It's it's doable, and it's something that you know power and systems engineers and reliability engineers put a lot of thought to. But this is not just you know we're going to go move the extension cord and call it good. Um, and so that's why, from an engineering standpoint, it is a rather tall order, probably seven eight on you know that excuse me magnitude of scale. And it would be easy if, you know, we were designing this again, you know, in the 1930s. I mean, that's that's the best way to say it. Right. We've kind of unfortunately backed ourselves into a corner, particularly with kind of our modern life. A lot of modern productivity and GDP is relying upon computing, internet, reliable power, those sorts of things. You know, I, I don't know too many Texans this week who, you know, for the sake of maybe having a more reliable grid 10 years from now, are willing to go two weeks without electricity. Yeah. These are. I don't even know a Texan that's willing to go two weeks at eighty-two degrees in their house, much less no electricity. No, and that's and that's kind of the big, you know, that's the big bugbear. How do we do this? How do we keep people, you know, happy? And how do you marshal the political will when you are, you know, unfortunately asking people to make some pretty nasty sacrifices? So there's so many different aspects of that engineering challenge that I'm sure. You may even be able to find someone who will come in and say, like, I have this plan. This will be easy to implement. One of the things I've learned over the years of, you know, basically selling risk and managed services for uh, ERCOT and a variety of other electricity power districts, you have no idea how stuff's going to work. We don't understand, once things are energized, necessarily how the system's going to handle it. We didn't expect renewables to have such huge penetration in Texas. We blew past all of our renewable goals over the last 20 years. There's some good aspects of that. There's some bad aspects of that. What has created a lot of externalities that how do we deal with this? So trying to say that just ramming everything together, splitting apart, exporting power to Louisiana, importing power from Louisiana is going to be easy. I, I'm putting up the caution flag largely because, you know, as I've said, no one's following me on LinkedIn. I'm sure listening to this, but as I've said on LinkedIn, if we do have some sort of large event where we have load shed this summer, the political ramifications are going to basically get Austin burned. 
Yeah. People are mad. People don't really, frankly, want to have to worry about electricity, and they really don't like getting alerts saying, hey, turn up your thermostat to 82, ERCOT's going to fail if we have too much load. So I don't like that. A, fr- a friend of mine, and it's great, I think it's one of the funniest things on social media, he calls his wife the warden and his two kids the inmates. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, the uh, the warden sent a text to him and said, who can I sue because they just, you know, they just shut off our electricity. So, I mean, when the warden's mad, everybody's going to be mad. Oh, so, yeah. So, so and, and again, we're kind of in this world where you and I are energy czars. And so, and you're not a, a, a line engineer. I'm yeah. nowhere near an engineer. So, let's just keep going. Um, if we... If, so let's say we decide, hey, we're gonna we're gonna interconnect, and we're just gonna tell the engineers to go do it, figure it out, best we can. And we're kind of sitting there going, okay, how much money is this gonna cost? And we kind of come up with a number. Even in that world, is there a chance there's a payback over, call it ten years, of being able to interconnect and? Export power when we're cheaper, import power when others are cheaper, maybe even some reliability type benefits because we we have the interflow of stuff. Or are you saying that this is going to be such a huge engineering problem, it's going to cost so much that even if we did it, it probably is not even going to be economically worth doing? Or do you know? Uh and you I know, realize that's the faint. No, I know. Question. Yeah, and take it wherever you want to go with. You know the the you know joke back of the spreadsheet math. I would tend to say it's there's probably not going to be a long enough and thorough enough pay profile to make it. You know, make the price actually work. Um, you know, essentially you're doing a a call option that I don't think is ever going to be in the money. Um, that being said, if we continue to have reliability issues, there probably will be the political will to do so um, at some meaningful level. Uh, the question is, if we don't have reliability issues and things kind of continue the way they are, does this go back to being a tabletop game done by people like me who work in the industry? Could be. That's really the the big issue was I thought maybe after, uh, you know, the last couple of years that maybe we would start turning the corner on reliability. I've been screaming about reliability since 2018 across the U.S., but we've seen NERC and other people say, even in largely interconnected grids, there's huge reliability risk. See, that's that's the thing is everyone's focused on ERCOT. There's huge reliability issues in SPP. There's huge reliability issues in the Western EIM and CAISO as well. So this is not an exclusive problem. Texas is also just a little bit ahead of the curve because we've pruned a lot of our, I'm not going to say lower performing, but less economic uh, coal and gas plants over the years and not replaced them. I think we only had 240 or 280 uh, megawatt net ad for gas last year, and we had a massive energization, pardon me, of wind and PV. So what does that mean? It means that we've already kind of run out of, you know, uneconomic units to to prune. So since we are ahead of the curve as compared to SPP, MISO, and other control districts. why we have bugs here in the, yeah. uh, in the podcast, too. It's probably the fake plant, but anyway, sorry about that. No, you're fine. Yeah. But that's one of the things that's interesting is we've already kind of run down that cost curve pretty aggressively too. So we're starting to see some of our issues crop up in these other control districts. So they're maybe at the 2012 starting point for ERCOT where 
we had some reliability issues kind of, you know, in 11, we thought about, you know, changing out the, you know, Volley in 2013, which is you know, set the price cap, which doesn't set the price cap anymore. All sorts of fun with that. We're already so far ahead of that, that merely interconnecting, I'm not sure if you'd actually get any long-term benefit. The, you know, overall grid in North America, or grids, because there's multiple, are starting to experience kind of some of the similar tight reserve margin days, you know, worried about low wind, worried about low PV, worried about we don't have enough dispatchables for control, for inertia, all the things we talked about last year. Those things are starting to crop up in other areas. So that's largely a function of Texas built this early. We did this really quickly, especially by comparison. What do we do now? Uh, California has like negative net load days. Net load is basically how much of your load is not served by renewables. Um, that's not actually 100% accurate because they have import and other things like that. But we're starting to see some really weird effects that and in the make me cautious. With ERCOT is, relatively speaking to the other districts, it's smaller, geographically more confined. So when we get hit with URI, Correct. We, get, we get the extremes. And we don't have battery storage yet on a wide enough scale to handle this. So you, you pretty much have to have load capacity for the electricity you need that day. You, you know, there's not a magic battery that you can draw out of. And so yeah. if you get hit with a heat wave, like we are right now, guess what? We don't have enough power. If you get hit with URI, we don't have enough power. Well, and I mentioned this early in the uh, podcast, we had some really fun uh, days in December where it was extremely cold in ERCOT. SBP, MISO, PJM, they all were struggling from similar reliability issues that we were. It's not just us. Um, there's winter peaking reliability issues kind of across North America, especially as people started installing more um, basically heat pump type heating systems versus just burning natural gas. We've seen that evolution also kind of start to have weird effects. You know, great example, I think we peaked at 79,000 megawatts in the winter. That's basically a former summer load record. These are weird things that, you know, if you'd asked me, and again, I'm not claiming I have a crystal ball. If I did, I, I mean, you know, trading power instead of just, you know, talking about it. We didn't think that we would become a dual peak. And ERCOT's now dual peak. We winter peak, we summer peak. We never historically did that. We were summer peak. These other control districts are also kind of moving to dual peak structures as well, which is unique. So when we talk about reliability, merely interconnecting us with these other grids doesn't just magically make the problem go away. We're a little bit further ahead. They're kind of trending the same direction where they could be having the same sorts of issues that we do. You get a really nasty, hot, extreme, you know, over kind of mid-continent heat wave, which can happen. Oh, they may start having big summer reliability issues. The West, we obviously know, has been low on hydro, so they've kind of had their own reliability issues. It's complicated enough that, and again, I'm not trying to diminish it or downplay it and say that there's not benefit to being interconnected. No, not at all. But between the cost, looking at it from a reliability standpoint, these aren't magic bullets that just make all these problems go away. We fundamentally in North America have a reliability problem. And, and so I'm glad we're talking about this because one thing I've always said is, hey, if we went to electric cars, we can all debate, are they better than internal combustion engines for the environment? I, Volvo, I think, did a deep dive study and the punchline was if you produce power like we do right now across the globe, 
at about 80,000 or 90,000 miles, the electric vehicle's better than the internal combustion engine. If you produce power like Europe does, I think it's, call it 60 or 65,000 miles, the crossover. So yes, that is better, and we can debate that, but yes, that is better. My question has always been the trillions of dollars we're going to need to spend to upgrade the grid, charging stations, all that. Is mining, it worth it? Mining too. Don't, mining, don't forget it, the mining. Is it actually worth it for, in effect, what may be you know, a five-year payback on something, if you will? Or are we better off spending that trillions of dollars trying to develop carbon capture? And that's my point, and I think that's what's totally missed in this debate because people go, okay, that's better, and they never say, there is a finite amount of money we can spend on this problem. Yes. And so anyway, that's why I love talking about this. Yeah, and that's, the, I know I'm kind of like hemming and hawing because it's, it's, I'm trying to do it justice and make sure that I'm not just, look, I'm not here like with a partisan stamp by any means. I'm just some guy who sits in an office and does risk for you know, a boatload of companies. The important thing to me is, we do have a finite amount of capital. We have a finite amount of human capital too. People also seem to be forgetting we aren't training, you know, like 5 million new engineers a year to do this. These are not simple solutions. This is a huge project. And everybody talks like, oh, it's a moonshot or a Manhattan project. Those are very special events that occurred and they were essentially art projects done by engineers. Are we going to get an art project done by exceptionally brilliant engineers to do this? Probably not. So because of those constraints, be the engineering, human capital, otherwise, you really do have to sit there and wonder, is this just something that we magically do? We've kind of blundered into it with electric cars. Not that there's anything wrong with electric cars, but that is a non-negligible effect on the grid. That is something that is new. Same thing with heat pumps as a heating source. You know, a lot of heating kind of because of natural gas fractions being so historically cheap. Move to that, well, you have a newer, smaller house or in addition, you may not put in a gas-fired furnace. You may be using a heat pump. That uses a lot more electricity. That's more demand on the grid. These are all the effects that really do put a lot of engineering constraint that is not something that even a really smart group of people can just magically say, we we parameterized everything. Because of kind of the difficulty of emergent phenomenon, be it the power grid itself, some exigency, you know, for whatever reason, we just don't know. And so that's why when, you know, you're putting on a public policy hat trying to say like, this is what we need. Great example, which, you know, was the failed 10,000, you know, gigawatt build of uh, stuff for House Bill 7 or whatever it was from, these are all, these are all exogenous and they, they appear to fix problems, but they don't actually understand all the interactive effects, how this works within the economic aspects of, if I'm a generator, screw you, I don't want this coming in, interplayed with all sorts of fun politics, which are particularly polarized. What it really leads me to conclude is there's just no way in hell to do this. Um, and it's not because of lack of will or things like that. There are fundamentally a large amount of conflicting theories, engineering constraints. Uh, money is a big one. You know, do you want to pay an extra couple grand in taxes a year? I mean, that's a hard sell for a lot of people. I mean, and these are the types of things that probably would require a pretty big spend. So I don't know for my book. You really do kind of start reaching a point to where it's a huge lift, it's a huge ask, it's exceptionally complicated, it's great to tabletop and it's great to think about, and from a resource planning idea, it, it is definitely something that needs to continue to be worked with, but this is not something that, you know, we're going to do this and in 60 months or less, we're going to have all of our ERCOT problems magically go away. Yeah. 
I wish that was the case. If, it, if there was something that simple, I can tell you from a political standpoint, it would behoove the governor and the uh, Republicans in both the House and Senate in Texas to get it done. But it's not that simple. Um, and that's always the difficulty of we have an intersection of politics, we have an intersection of policy, and then there's the hard engineering realities, and you're never going to get an efficient outcome on all of them. Yeah. And that the one example I saw in was it Senate Bill 4 from 21 that was the URI bill, I think. Anyway, the, the, the winterization bill, let's call it. One of the things they did there is they went in and they said, hey, if you produce natural gas, more than 50 MCF a day, you are deemed critical. Right. And we want you to winterize and all that. One of the large water flood producer, oil and gas guys, calls me up and he says, you know, I produce 52 MCF of uh, natural gas a day. And I go, congratulations. You know, that's great. And he goes, no, I have to winterize that. And I go, okay, well, yeah, that's part of the bill. And he goes, you do know, though, that deeming me critical means I cannot participate in the LARS program, which is the load reduction yep. program. And he goes, my draw is about 30 megawatts. Yep. And so he says, so just recognize next time winter Yuri, you know, winter storm Yuri hits, I, it's more important to the state of Texas that I produce my 52 MCF of natural gas instead of taking my 30 megawatt load off of the grid. Bingo. And uh, I went, oh my God, that's unintended consequence. They didn't think that through. And why, why I'm saying that is, you're right. No one goes and talks to an engineer and says, hey guys, how does this work? And so they missed that. And then we did a podcast about it. I actually had the guy on. We talked through this whole this whole issue. I actually talked with the railroad commission. I was like, guys, are, do we really want a front page New York Times story of people are freezing to death in Texas, but big oil continues to produce? Yep. And the railroad commission's response was, well, we provided for some hearings and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So that please give us feedback. Yeah. Uh, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I go, you really expect somebody to spend a million dollars on lawyers going through all that to their credit. I give the railroad commission credit. They got it. And my whole thing was if your electricity load is more than what the natural gas could produce, you're defaulted to your, your you know, you're not categorized as uh What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, critical infrastructure. Yeah, 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 not critical infrastructure. You're not categorized that way. And if we think otherwise, we'll then come after you and make you reverse it out. And so anyway, to their credit, they eventually got that right. But that's the unintended consequence. And no one listens to the engineers. And no. Well, and it goes back to there's so many things like this that occur particularly in the public power industry, public I'm mentioning that specifically as well, there's all sorts of engineering constraints. ERCOT, I kind of agree with this, but where you have a unique issue, we just energize any PV project, whatever. It's like, yep, just put it on the grid. There's curtailments because of that because you have transmission constraints. So other control districts are saying, no, 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 we got to get this built before we'll energize it. So that's why everybody's like, just put the PV in Texas. They'll turn it on and you know, you'll at least be economic because you can produce essentially below zero because of the, you know, subsidies from federal government, state, local, and everything else. It's a whole different discussion, but those are the sorts of constraints where you're like, well, this is kind of nonsensical. What if on a high low day, we have to curtail all these PV plants because we don't have enough transmission? Well, no, let's build them. So that's where you kind of get these strange inner, inner, they're not interactive effects so much as they are kind of 
little bit di more difficult to describe from an economic standpoint. The other issue is the people who work uh, lobbying around this, they're not bad people. They're lobbying their book as they should be. They're going to try to make sure they get a carve out to protect, you know, their particular either public power or, you know, their generator like Alpine. I'm not picking on any company. I'm just using mm -hmm. large examples. That's going to be something that people also forget. They're like, no, we have this clean legislative process that everything's, you know, you know, above board and everything else. No, politics is dirty. It's not a bad thing. It's just kind of the way the process works. But whenever you start trying to say, like, these emergent phenomenon we can figure out, no, you're often going to have things that you have no idea why the heck it happened. So what do you do in those cases? You know, from a liability engineering standpoint, it's very top down. And a lot of the development and things like that are very bottom up. So you have kind of a competing, you know, models as to how do you actually build a market. I mean, ERCOT is a market. I put it in air quotes because there's so many different constraints put on it by the PUC, not freezing or killing grandma when it's hot or cold. These are important social constraints. And from, you know, social choice theory, yeah, we got to we gotta worry about that because it's the interaction of politics, engineering, and again, legislative sessions. So reconciling those, one we know is impossible. You know, it's just, you're not going to get an outcome that's going to be perfect for everybody. Um, you know, and just to drop a weird political science thing, that's what Eros theorem tells us. You're not going to get an efficient outcome in social choice theory that's going to make everyone happy. It's going to provide the best outcome for everybody. So because of that, much like an engineering constraint, how do you reconcile it? And that's where I argue that actually going through the legislature is probably good, but you're going to get externalities exactly like, like what you said. Why are we not shutting off our load? Why are we producing 52, you know, MCF? 52 MCF is not very much gas. Right. I mean, you could maybe run like a five megawatt plan on that. Maybe not even, yeah. you know, depending upon your current on efficiency and heat rate. That's kind of a silly point. Uh, what I'm saying, not, yeah. not that aspect, but that's really where you do start bumping into that. And man, if, if someone a lot smarter than me can break arrow and can provide, you know, a way to provide a social choice function that provides all the different things that we need in ERCOT for Texans, for politics, I'm all ears. But as far as I can tell, we're going to have some problems uh, trying to get all of this lined out. And that is largely a, a function, talking externalities again, of really low cost renewables. Not because renewables are bad, not because we don't want to energize on the grid. When you're bidding in at essentially zero, you're always going to run. And so what that does is you start earning units and you start having reliability issues. We did it earlier. Other control districts are coming up on our heels. So let's close with, with this. And I'll ask you the question, but I'll go first. Um, do we have two or three recommendations of things we could do today that what I'll call are actually practical and might happen um, type things? And I'm going to go first with my suggestion, and uh, I'll let you critique it, and then maybe you'll throw out one or two uh, suggestions of what we ought to do. And I'll give the story, and I probably told you the story last time you were on, so you'll have to sit through it again. But when Winter Storm Uri hit, I lived down in Richmond, fire department, police station, hospital. I'm right in the middle. I'm never going down, right? I'm sitting there, boom, electricity goes off. So anyway, I called my parents. Previous to Winter Storm Uri, my, uh, my dad had put in solar panels on the vacant lot. Calls up Tesla, gets all the solar panels. And I'm like, Dad, how much does that cost? And Dad goes, $125,000. And I'm like, 
huh? And he goes, but I never have to buy electricity ever again. And I go, okay, did you run any math? And uh, he goes, yeah, 14.2 year payback. And I'm like, okay, you're 80. And <laughs> I hope you're here to see payback, but you're 80. Uh, so anyway, we, we laughed about that. Winter Storm Yuri, my, uh, of course, my power goes up. So I show up over at my parents' house. Got like my cat and my cat carrier, and I got my bag under my arm. And I walk in, I sit down in the den, and under his breath, Dad goes, 14.2 year payback. Doesn't sound so bad right about now, does it? So my suggestion, and I don't, I want to get your take on how hard this is. There's a trade somehow, and I don't know how you do it. Tax incentives, tax breaks, maybe even a little bit of a stick with a penalty if you don't. If you're quote unquote rich, and I don't know how we define rich, maybe we do it based on home values. You got to go get a generator, a generator, backup power of some sort. And when doo-doo hits the fan on this, we're going to cut you off. Does that, how hard is that to do? I mean, the the market's kind of naturally doing that on its own. Um, and, uh, you know, full disclosure, I, I like emergent phenomenon. It's not a political bin. It's just kind of, you know, my economic background. That's already naturally happening. I mean, Generac stock had a little bit of a dip earlier this year, but it's pretty darn high, especially compared to 10 years. Because I'm going to go get it. I'm oh, gonna, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm full disclosure. I'm, I'm going to do it without any incentives. No, I, I've, I've got a whole home generator, upgraded gas meter. I'm ready to go. I mean, Yuri, we we were fine. We didn't have internet, which was no good, but yeah, we stayed up on keeping our house from freezing. The market's going to do that. Um, I already have a good friend who installed, good God, I don't even know how much it costs. He has full PV on his house, and then he actually has batteries. So he can run, I think, mostly like eight or nine hours, basically off grid on the batteries, and then sun comes up, he'll recharge. My dad think my dad's got the Tesla batteries on the side of the house, yep. and and he says it's it's a day and a half. Maybe okay, maybe. so he probably specced it a little better than yeah. a good friend of mine. I would love to mention his name, but he'd get mad at me. So that's kind of already naturally happening. I don't. There's no incentive needed to do that. People don't like being hot. People don't like being cold. Um, that was already happening largely before. Uh, I mean, great example. We had our gen set installed because of tropical risk. You know, we get hit by a hurricane. I'm not yeah. dealing with that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't live here in 08, but everybody I know who did was like, it was horrible. Yeah. After the hurricane, like we didn't have power for three weeks. You know, neighborhood was a mess. So there's a lot of people who already did that. My neighborhood, for instance, I think probably 60% of the homes have generators. See, because you, you wonder if, you know, at the distribution level, could you... Could you say, in effect, okay, we're cutting River Oaks off first, and that is, and that's the that's the stick side of it is just that's know. kind of what a lot of people have been saying, and they want to basically be able to do that at the meter level. Yeah, I I think frankly, one, I, I don't like that. Um, that is kind of a creepy level of control to say, like, you know, I'm a libertarian, so it bugs me too. It, but it deeply unsettles me because that could easily be something that goes the wrong way, as the play would say it. Nice thing about rotating outages, this is going to sound goofy. The fact that they are manual means that for center point for us to go do that, that is a very deliberate action. That is not just somebody on a computer, you know, oops, futzed, we took out, you know, Briar Meadow where I live. Right. That deliberate aspect is both good and it kind of says that, yeah, if we are doing load shed, we got some serious issues. Um, so maybe, maybe we, it's voluntary. I go put in my generator, my solar Gen generac and a lot of other people are working my on batteries that. and i go okay to whoever center point i'm good i will sign the agreement you can shut me off 
So maybe if it's voluntary, maybe it put some sort of court protection in there too or something. Okay. So maybe 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 we could do that on a voluntary basis and the libertarian and me could live with it. <laughs> maybe. See, I, I still, and you know, I'm sure someone's going to yell at me over saying this, but I still view, uh, I don't necessarily dislike controlled delivery resources, but that energy efficiency, basically being able to do, you know, demand response and stuff like that. I view that as we've already failed. You know, okay. if, we're, if we're talking about that, we fundamentally don't have enough power available for reliability. Um, well, there's also engineering aspects of it. Like, are you dealing with reactive power if you're trying to you know, transmit into the grid versus just shut off at the meter? So I think we've already failed from a reliability standpoint. I, and it's not, you know, in Texas, it's probably the only place in the U.S. where people are, you know, put out mandatory conservation notice and they're like, I'm turning my thermostat down to 65. <laughs> Screw you, ERCOT. Um, which is both hilarious and a little sad. But yeah, I, I think once we've started talking about that deliberately, I'm not convinced that we haven't already kind of crossed the Rubicon and we're already kind of hosed. I think it is good. I think consumers by, you know, the last couple of years paying higher prices are more conscientious about it. They are better about, you know, winterizing their homes. I don't think we need programs from the state level to do it. I think those end up just kind of becoming rent transfer programs to, you know, essentially turns into cronyism. I'm not calling everybody corrupt, but there's often too much of it. And then it becomes, well, what do we actually get for this? So I, I, I push back on that because I think it is a bit heavy handed and I don't know that it would actually produce the intended consequence. Gotcha. Uh, All right. So now I'm going to turn it on you. Give me, give me, give me something that maybe, maybe uh, if we had breakfast with uh, Abbott and Patrick, potentially could get done. Yeah, and that's that's the one where I was very, and I, this is one of the things where I got to admit, and if somebody's seen anything that's been I've written or anything else, I was very anti-capacity markets for years. Um, they're clunky. They're kind of an extra layer of complication. I've kind of slowly come around to the conclusion that we either have to rebid everything. And by that, I mean like renewables don't bid in at effectively zero or, you know, a dollar a megawatt or, you know, so when you're doing the SCED, you know, when you actually get the LMP, they're always biased. Either have to zero, zero rate and go back and redo that, or you're going to have to go to capacity market. You're not going to zero rate everything. It's politically untenable. I fully admit that, even though I think it is a superior idea for rebidding the stack, I think you're going to have to move to capacity market. Um, the way capacity markets have been implemented in other parts of the United States are kind of a nightmare. PGM keeps delaying their capacity auction for, I think, 24 and 25, maybe 26. Don't, um, apologies. The point is, they're not perfect, but we need some mechanism to essentially price reliability. And so what is a capacity market? So, so basically, the market we have in Texas is you put an electron on, you get paid. Largely, right. more it will, largely, largely yeah, yeah. The energy only markets are essentially your only signal to really bid in is basically price, right? Um, and so that's why today prices are going up to sixteen hundred a megawatt forecasted day ahead for that market. So basically, we'll see where the real time goes. That's effectively what it is. That's why you know the basically the value loss load used to be nine thousand a megawatt hour used to be very high because if you're at the load shed point, you know it should be rather expensive. We want to get in generation on to match it. That's a very, very simplistic view of energy only. Fasty market, you still have an energy market. You still have, you know, basically your nodal market where you have to worry about congestion, things like that. You can have some markets that deal with congestion in certain ways, like FTRs. We have CRRs, congestion rights in Texas. But a true capacity market is we bid and pay for capacity reliability. You could argue that we kind of do that with the ancillary services market and, you know, op- moving the operating reserve demand curve and some other things like that. But we probably would need a full redesign where 
largely why units are leaving coal and gas. I'm not saying these were the best units, but they've left and they're not dispatchable is because they just don't get enough economic hours every year. You don't want to just set them aside or move them out of the market, which are some of the proposals they made this spring. That's even worse because that's going to obscure. It's going to make price discovery impossible. But having some mechanism, and I'm not saying I have a market design for it right now. There's really bright people who do that. Moving towards that, where we actually do pay some reliability mechanism that's separate from ancillary services to basically either build or keep things online, that's probably going to be the least cost and most efficient, in my estimation, way to do this. I'm sure there's you know someone who's going to model it out and basically say, no, this is a terrible idea. But like I said, I was very anti-capacity market, and I've kind of swung around in the last three years because um, I do think we're going to have to have some price mechanism that's not as simple to get that done. Um, and it's not because I'm, you know, changing political views or, you know, I have like some agenda. It's more just kind of, what do we do to get more megawatts on the grid that are dispatchable? And we do it in the least cost fashion. That's not one going to screw up our PV and wind that we've already built. So that's not good for capital holders and right. you know bond pairs and everything else and rate pairs. And two, I, I think it would go a long way towards mitigating a lot of the uh, angst that people have knowing that, we are building or retaining these without some outside market mechanism. Is a simple way to do that, and again, this will go into the political process and everybody will talk their own book and it probably won't get done, but is a simple way to do that potentially is, is something to the effect of there's a penalty if you're not delivering uh, power to the grid, meaning hey, wind, we're glad to have you throw your electrons on here, but if you don't throw your, or if you're not, if you don't have the ability within, I'll make this up and I'm not. No, you're, yeah, you're fine. Within, within eight hours, if you're not able to turn on electricity and, and we need it, uh, and there's some amount of electricity you have to generate, uh, you either have to provide that power, diesel gen sets or whatever the case may be, or if you can't do that, you pay a penalty and that in effect kind of subsidizes the fact that... And that was proposed in... Is that year. kind of a backdoor way to do what you're talking about, sort of? Sort of. Yeah. The reason I still kind of lean away from that is it's still too much of an economic rent transfer, which okay. is, in my opinion, a big no-no. We, we want to avoid that. We there's so much slippage around that and there's so many ways for people to, yeah, and kind of manipulate it. And that's what I worry about is designing in the legislature from that perspective, I think is going to create a suboptimal outcome. Okay. Um, not because the people in the legislature are all stupid. There's some who aren't, but trying to coalesce a body around that, that's difficult, especially like I'm an attorney who's worried about my, you know, small South te- Texas district. I just want to make sure we get funding for schools and things like that. Yeah. This power stuff, not really my book. Right. It's not, again, insulting them. It's just trying to line that up. So I think actually having a more proper formal uh, market mechanism, which is funny since I talked about I don't like market mechanisms and they're contrived, but I think that's going to provide- It's all good. We're energy czars. Yeah. We can do that. I think that would provide probably the least cost uh, ability to do it. Um, And one of the things that I would say that would have to be looked at is there's probably an analog somewhere. Uh, I don't know if it's definitely not Australia, but- could be you know New Zealand or it could be something in Europe. Um, I probably should know from a market design standpoint. I don't because uh, I have a lot of other things to do during the day. You have a day job, yeah. But finding an analog that you could maybe start with might be good. I I don't think the PJM model is the way to go, um, but it would probably be a heck of a lot better than what we currently have. Um, and that's even me 
you know, crapping on the way that they've been doing their capacity auctions. We've kind of just hit that point where if we don't do something kind of in the immediate term, I don't know where we're going to be. It's, and, and it's so, a problem. So listening to you talk kind of to make sure I understand and dumbing it down just a few levels is basically what you're talking about is I'll say we, and that's kind of everyone connected to ERCOT is in effect going to pay some modicum to you, the power producer, if you just build one and it runs. Yep. Yeah. Got it. And, and I guess the devil's in the details, but it's, we're not going to pay you enough so you make money so you just frivolously build it. But at the same time, we're subsidizing a little in effect. So we have hopefully more reliability. Yeah. That's, that's largely what it is, is it, it, Again, we're talking about not trying to do economic transfers, right. but that's kind of why the reason we would want it to be basically somewhat of a market design around that is in theory to get people to be competitively bidding to say, instead of building a bunch of open cycle gas turbines, which are horribly inefficient, they're useful for certain things. Right. We're going to have people either building like really clean, uh, you know, combined cycle turbines that are extremely efficient, or maybe somebody's got a longer term view like, hey, like I want to be a big part of either their liability or baseload component. If I can, you know, bid certain units, build nuclear, there's a lot of interplay where I, in my opinion, that type of market design could spur, you know, either the retention of certain units to keep them from getting burned or new build, which is designed largely around providing that reliability when we need it. Summer, winter, you know, maybe a lot of the year it's not going to run, kind of looks like a dual peaker setup. That, in my opinion, would probably provide the least cost. The problem is I'm worried about it politically that it's not going to be expedient. Uh, a lot of the people who are going to be reviewing this on you know, committees and stuff like that are going to be like, we got this recommendation. This seems simple. It's not simple. And designing it correctly would be a challenge to make sure that, again, we're getting kind of the intended outcome and not just some transfer to whatever your client is. Um, and that's, that's the difficult part. So I'll set this up for our version of Return of the Jedi. Because we've done Star Wars, we've done Empire Strike Back. And I don't buy the new titles. I'm still old school from that. Uh, but I'll drop this in for our our third podcast we do. You know, if Texas would actually get that right, I fundamentally believe the amount of power we're going to need because of AI, Bitcoin mining, data centers, the cloud, is multiples of even the wildest forecasts. I oh, mean, yeah. I'm addicted to chat GPT. And I don't even have a job. You know, I just, what about this? So I think once we start integrating that into our business processes, as well as what we've seen with technology our whole lives is when eight-year-olds grow up with it, guess what? They use it for the rest of their lives. Oh, yeah. And so if Texas could actually get that right and we could, in effect, provide reliable power that, if you got it right, would be cheaper. And we've got so many natural resources. We've got so much natural gas here. We've got, we've got West Texas. That I hate to say this, and I'll, I'll get canceled for this. Is the ugliest part on the planet. We could put solar panels all over it. Oh, I like West Texas. Wind wind farms all over it, and we're not going to disturb anything of uh, of great beauty. We've got the ability to do all that. I mean, we're already an economic beacon for the United States. Imagine if if uh, if we got all that right and folks were just like, hey, Monahan's Texas, we're going to build all our data centers. You know, because I really do think at the end of the day, a lot of this, man, you, 
Because the other thing we've kind of learned too is in a pandemic, we actually need to make stuff here. Yes, we do. You know, and so the manufacturing, the cloud, all that sort of stuff, I think it's going to wind up, it's going to wind up locating itself near reliable, cheap power. Yes. Uh, and I apologize, I'm not trying to jump over top of you because I, yeah, I agree. We, we need reliable and expensive power. Uh, it's not only kind of an economic you know, bellwether because people are like, well, it's cheap, it's reliable, we can you know, afford to do business there. Two or 3% makes a difference. The other thing that is good is you know, we do have a good education system. All of that creates the conditions that we need for success. Um, and obviously I'm biased since I live here and I like Texas. I want us to continue to do that. We've had reasonably low electricity prices over the last 30 years. I think for the next 30 years, we need continued reliable low electricity prices. And I don't think on our current trajectory, we're going to continue to have those. Um, and that's why, like I said, I very reluctantly have come around to, um, you know, some reliability mechanism in the market because it, we, we can't be talking about this five years from now. And I'm worried that we will be. Um, I would, is I've liked to joke in the past, I would like this all to recede back into the background. It's me and the other weirdos who, you know, go to Austin and go to conferences who talk about this. That's a good problem. Nobody's paying attention to it. But when it's hot and your lights go out, it kind of becomes a public policy issue. And I think if we don't navigate it well over the next couple of years, we're going to impair Texas. And that worries me. You're talking about it on a podcast when the episode I released two weeks ago was called Chuck Yates Needs a Wife. <laughs> so then more to your point. So Yeah. Uh, you're cool to come it's worried. I appreciate this. No, thank you. I really appreciate the time. And yeah, it's I would like to not talk about this anymore uh, outside of a small group, but we may be doing it in another five years. Well, and I appreciate you coming on because uh, I've always been an oral learner. I hate to read. And so it's a lot easier. Hey, I'm going to get an expert in here and chat about it instead of having to go read a bunch of stuff. So I appreciate you doing it. Now, thank you again.